listening to Best Served Cold, a Born Millennials podcast. The Australian true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Formerly Egypt's 36th most popular true crime podcast, hosted by Tama J and Laura Lees. Sit down, relax, grab a drink and enjoy this week's episode. Hey. 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 Coppers. Hey. Hey. What's going What's on, up? coppers? I always think you're calling people coppers when you say that. It's one of those... Uh, it's one of those days. We're on we're on the tins. I think you peaked the mic doing that. That's as well. fine. It's all good. We're on the tins, so I'm drinking a delicious tropical mango hard seltzer this evening. Yep. With less than one gram of sugar and only ninety nine calories, apparently. They're really good. And I'm drinking a uh, hazy mid beer from the same company, Waywards Brewing in Sydney. My new favorite. Um, a those shout out. seltzers are amazing. They're delicious. By the way. They're dangerous, um, though, because they do not taste yeah. remotely like they have alcohol But they're a great them. drink if you're watching your weight and kind of watching your calorie intake and all that. Yes. Uh, anyway, welcome to Best Served Cold, you mother lickers. <sighs> I haven't heard that for so long. Oh, my God. <laughs> welcome to another week of Best Served Cold, the true crime podcast where we drink uh, <laughs> not wine, and but we do talk about crime. We haven't drunk wine great. for a while. No, it's been a bit... Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to come up with a new slogan. We've do- oh. we've tried. We have tried to think of a rhyme as smooth as we drink wine and talk about crime. Well, theoretically, we exist. do we do drink wine and we do talk about crime, just not necessarily in that order. True, but the so, whole when we started the show, we exclusively drank red wine. Yeah, but look, it, it's not it's not because we do it during the show, but because we do it outside of the show. Sometimes anyway, in the show. If you anyway, can think of a better rhyme than I don't think there's a better rhyme. We drink wine and talk about crime. Please st- send it. I'm to standing us. that. We have tried. Yeah. In my opinion, it doesn't exist. Anyway, I'm one of your excellent uh, co-hosts, Laura Lee, and I'm just a poor boy from a poor family, and spare me my life from this monstrosity. <laughs> wow, Jesus Christ. Uh, and I am Tama Toa, your other co-host. These boots were made for digging graves. Ooh. Mm. Very meta of you. Yes. If you don't mean that literally. Uh, no. I believe that was a song um, by a singer who will remain unknown because we don't like to name names here. But um, What? Yeah, you know, <laughs> that these boots are made for digging graves and that's just what they'll do. Never heard that song before? No. Yeah, it's a really good song. Okay. Um, very cool. dark, though, and menacing. And, uh, you know, one of those things where it kind of didn't age well. Yep. Yep. Cool. How's that your was... week been? <laughs> oh, it's been okay. It's been one of those weeks where it's just like little things keep happening and annoying me. Like, just little yep. things will keep going wrong where it's not like a big thing, but it's just annoying like, you know, we're getting a new car, but we just found out we're not going to get it until about a week after <clears throat> when we thought we were going to get it. So it's just like little, just one of those weeks. Yeah. I mean, it's all good in the end. You know, things are going to work itself out. It's just little, little hindrance in the, in the path there. They're just like little speed bumps that piss you off. Yeah. My week's been about the same. Yeah. Um, it's just one of those, yeah, like you said, it's just one of those kind of weeks where it's just like, all right, let's just hurry it along and 
get this shit over with. But you know what? It's all good because you go to sleep and you wake up and you get to live another day and that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty rad. lots of people go to sleep and don't wake up. Yeah, we do stand living. It's the grim outlook of the world we live yeah, in. Yeah, we're big fans. True. We do. We stand living. Yeah. <laughs> I stand it. I definitely um, stand it. Just, you know, if you're new around here... Uh, just a little, we're trying to remember to do this at the start of every episode. If you're not a fan of the word fuck or shit, please just, just click next on your, on your podcast player. Mm-hmm. Cause you are not going to enjoy the show. We swear a lot. If swearing offends you, we are not the show for you. Thank you for your patronage, but please keep on moving and don't leave us a one star review Move the fuck on, on iTunes or I so will to cry. Speak. Moving on up, move, move it along, on. please fuck off, because <laughs> we don't want you. No, um, Do not review but us. But <laughs> please don't review us. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think I have any housekeeping. No, there's nothing really. This is, this is, a, this is a very atypical episode today. Housekeeping free episode. I guess just the only thing worth mentioning is that if you do feel like chucking us a follow on social media, you can find us at the BSC podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Mm -hmm. And we have merch. If Mm -hmm. you would like to buy our merch, help fund the show. Not that it really costs any money to run it, but, you know, it does. We have to pay for hosting. Oh, it does cost money. Uh, So if you feel like, you know, helping us fund the show, we have some pretty cool merch and the link is in the show notes. Yes. Uh, please give us it. a follow unless you want to wait, make Peach, our young cat, cry. And uh, she does cry. Uh, also, a big lot. shout out to uh, Kate who sent in photos of her dog. Yes. That was, um, that was very cute. I, I very much enjoy that. Uh, really made my day. Uh, Swansea, very beautiful dog. And uh, props to you, Kate. Very much appreciate it. We love it when people send us animal photos. So if you have a dog, a cat, a squirrel, a ferret, a teacup pig, a horse, a goose, a zebra, please, you know, follow us on social media and send us photos because yeah, makes me smile. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, But yeah, I guess if there's nothing else to... Add. Let's just jump right into it. I will it, say, shall we? Oh, okay. I'm actually no, no, no. no. Th- this is jumping into it. This is not like a housekeeping <laughs> thing. Great. This is just saying the seltzers are very fizzy, and I'm very scared that I'm just going to be like mid sentence and just like rip the biggest burp yeah. ever. So if you don't like swears and burps, in look, your if show, that happens, we will edit it out. We're not going to leave that in. That's pretty sure. gross. Okay, that's pretty gross. Right. Uh, anyway, I do want to do a little disclaimer. At the start of this one, and I probably should have done this last week for um, Fred and Rosemary West, because this is another uh, story that involves the assault and murder of very small children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if that's not your vibe, maybe um, check out another episode or just skip forward to uh, Tama's story. Or no, you yours... don't want to. No, wanna, okay. No, just skip if you the don't want to hear episode. about the assault and murder of young children, maybe this is not the episode for you. Definitely not. No. <clears throat> um, so another super unpleasant one. I'm talking about Ian Brady and uh, Myra Hinsley, who committed the uh, Moore murders. M-double-O-R. Okay, right. M-O-R-E. Not Moore. And the reason I was actually inspired to do this one is, I don't know if you've seen this, but they've I don't know if it's – I assume it's an app, but you can put, like, old photos into this app and it somehow, like, maps 
the person's face just based off their photos and I guess like AI kind of intelligently guessing and it animates the photos. Yes, yeah, I've it's seen that. It's so fucking creepy. So someone took a photo of uh, Myra Hindley, her mugshot, and animated it and she just has dead eyes and it's honestly yeah. the creepiest thing ever. Yeah, technology's gotten a bit far with that kind of shit. Like we don't need to be yeah. reanimating mugshots of serial killers. Look, like, look it, it peaked at Obama singing songs in Japanese. Uh, but is and that just him? not like the most internet thing ever? Like someone's made this app to probably like reanimate old photos of their dead grandmother that they missed dearly. Yeah. And so the internet's been like, you know what? I think we should take serial killers who murdered children and reanimate yeah, them. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was the same thing with the deepfakes shit, right? It was started yeah. off as a kind of a meme thing and then it turned into, well, this is kind of just Jennifer Lawrence on a porn star's body. Ugh. And this very creepy. Terrifies me about yeah, the thought of being a celebrity. Not really cool. Anyway, so Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. So their backstory. So Ian, he was born in Scotland in 1938 to his mother, Margaret. And obviously he did have a father because that's how it works. Uh, the yeah. identity of his father was unknown. And from what I can understand, he didn't necessarily have a terrible childhood. His mother was obviously a single mother and working as a waitress, so a few months after he was born, she was struggling quite hard to take care of him, and so she didn't put him up for adoption, but she sent him to, like, a local family to sort of foster him, I yeah, guess. Yeah, for sure, yeah. However, the family he moves in with seems nice enough. They're a, a loving couple who live locally who have four other children, um, and his mother's regularly allowed to visit him. So it's not like she can't go and see him. It's just basically she's like, please take care of this baby because I can't. Mm -hmm. However, it's pretty clear from a young age that something is like wrong inside his brain. It was said that he enjoyed torturing animals, even once setting a dog on fire. And later in life, as he began school, he'd begin attacking other small children. He was always considered quite smart, though, and at his first school he was seen as a bright um, bright student but an underachiever and so was sent to a special school for essentially gifted children where he still falls below the bar and had no real want to try and you know motivate or apply himself it was said because as he grew up just after the end of world war ii that he was obsessed with the nazi regime and he touted mein kampf as one of his favorite books okay as all teenagers do yeah uh, if you wanted to have the definition of gray uh gray area that's kind of it yeah we love a bit of a uh like hind i guess not hindsight like foreshadowing or foreboding yeah i don't i don't think it's a good personality trait to quote Hitler's biography as your favourite book. So what, what, what year was this, sorry? Like, what time frame? Well, he was born in 1938. Right, okay. 1938 and World War Two finished in 1945. Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, so, you know, he was sort of, you know, five, six, seven at the height of, like, Nazi power. Yeah. This is I also guess. during a time of... Mass radicalism mm, and mm-hmm. uh, misinformation in news corporations and things like that. It's very easy to spread stuff like that. Yeah. So as a teenager, he was constantly in trouble. And by 15, he had already appeared in court more than once for breaking into people's homes. He was violent and his one and only girlfriend in high school broke it off with him after he threatened her with a knife for dancing with another boy. By 17, he's placed on probation under the care of his mother, who had by now remarried 
and which is how Ian gets his surname Brady. She marries a fruit merchant in Manchester with the surname Brady. Mm. However, shortly after moving to Manchester to join his mother, he was caught stealing and sent away for three months. After taking a strange shine to bookkeeping after coming across a you know, an instructional book about it in the library. He obtains a job in 1959 at a chemical distribution centre called Millwards, which is where he eventually meets Myra Hindley. So Myra had a bit more of the, you know, atypical upbringings that we're used to hearing about on this show. She was born in 1942 in England to Nellie and Bob. She was born into quite a poor family and her father was an alcoholic who regularly beat the children. Upon the birth of her sister, their situation, their financial situation rather worsens and eventually the children are sent to live with their grandmother. Despite being born in the height of what I guess I would consider, you know, like the typical domestic housewife time, Hindley's father was a tough army man who'd served in the war and thought regardless of her gender, Myra should have the same tough attitude, meaning she was taught to fight, stand up for herself and would beat up other kids on multiple occasions, eventually even taking judo classes, which I thought was really interesting for oh, a girl in the 50s. Right. Yeah, very interesting. Where she develops a reputation for, you know, just like taking a little bit too long to release her, you know, chokeholds and... Yeah, that's always a bad thing. That sort of stuff. Um, you know, being in an MMA gym myself, that's a very grey yes. area. You don't want to do that. So it was said that due to her tomboy attitude, most boys at school didn't like her, nicknaming her Square Ass. Uh, what? Wait, what? Square Ass. How does? How was an ass? I think it's square. square. I think it's like you're a square, maybe. Oh, that's very stupid. Wow. I don't know. It's the fifties. They didn't call people like shithead. I feel like they did. <laughs> At some point in the 1940s, they must have just been hey. like, hey, shithead. <laughs> Oi, shithead. <laughs> yeah. uh, so one event that many people have cited as deeply affecting her was the death of one of her close school friends, Michael, by drowning. So after inviting Myra out for a swim at the local reservoir, you know, she refuses and, I don't know, she was busy on that day, and her friend goes on her own and he drowns. And so she was said to blame herself for being absent on the day and not being there to save him. Oh, that's unfortunate. So at around age 17, Myra's father, who, as I mentioned, was an awful abusive man, he suffered a stroke, which only caused to make him meaner and nastier to her mother. So on one occasion, spurred by his treatment of her mother, Hindley proceeded to beat and humiliate her disabled father, turning the roles on their heads that she you know, suffered as a child. In 1961, aged 18, Hindley gets a job as a typist uh, at Millwoods, the same place that Brady is working, and this is where they meet. So they are instantly attracted to each other, or Hindley rather is obsessed with him. But it's only after, sorry, it's after a year at a Christmas party when Brady walks her home that he sort of reciprocates and they begin seeing each other. Hindley's diary entries at the time show her absolute fascination and obsession with him. He teaches her about the Nazis and their sort of teachings and they bond over this as well as their shared belief that rape and murder isn't wrong. Okay. Right. Um, put that under uh, yeah. the no-nos for Yeah, just file that under red flags. Yeah. So this is also when Hindley dyes her hair peroxide blonde to help emulate, you know, his idea of the perfect Aryan woman. 
Oh, fuck. Oh, God. That's so wrong. He also encourages her to read the works of, and I am so sorry if I butcher this pronunciation, uh, Marquis du Sade. I think that's potentially right. Marquis du Sade, who was a French philosopher whose works were all incredibly violent and sexual. So he, I believe, wrote the work that the movie 128 Days of Sodom is based off. Oh, fucking that, God. Yeah. Jesus. So Brady's the man who takes her virginity and allegedly during their first time together, he's incredibly violent and bites her. He also encourages her to pose for pornographic images and their love for each other grows deeper and deeper over a shared obsession with violent sexual fantasies. And this is when they sort of start planning things. So initially when they start talking, it starts as a a bank robbery, which many suspect Brady was sort of using to to sort of gauge her interests and see how willing she was far, like how far she was willing to go for him. Mm -hmm. It's around this time that she'd recently got her driver's license as well. And so he sees this as the perfect setup to have her as the getaway driver. It's around this time as well that she wakes one morning to realize that despite her willingness to have sex with him, Brady has drugged and raped her. A diary entry from this time reads, he is cruel and selfish and I love him. Uh, Swiggity, those things don't necessarily go hand in hand. No, 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 no. That's, that's like saying this sandwich has too much mustard, but I love it. Look, I mean, she's pretty fucked up in her own right, but we'll right. get to that. So it's on the evening of the 12th of July, 1963, the pair commit their first murder together. They lock their focus on 16-year-old Pauline Reed, who was a friend of Hindley's younger sister, Maureen, and Maureen's boyfriend, David Smith. Pauline was supposed to be going to a dance with her friends, but after her parents find out that there will allegedly be alcohol at this party, they you know, change their minds and say you can't go. And so Pauline attempts to find her own way there. Hindley comes across her and offers her a lift to the dance. And once in the car, she starts talking to her and they're chatting. And she mentions that she's lost a really expensive glove in the nearby Saddleworth Moors. She says that Brady has gifted it to her. And if she doesn't find it, he'll be furious. So she convinces Pauline to spend some time before the dance helping her look for this glove. What Pauline doesn't realize is Brady is following on his motorcycle and once they arrive at the moors, he drags Pauline into the moors where he rapes, tortures and eventually decapitates her. Oh my God. Yes. Well, partially decapitates her. He slits her throat so deeply in multiple places that she's essentially decapitated. That's a fucking stretch. Hindley maintains that she stayed in the car for the duration of the crime, however, does admit that once he returned, she helped him bury the body. It was also said that when he returned to the car and Hindley questioned whether he had raped Pauline, he responded with, of course I did. It's like, okay, all right, dude. Once Pauline's absence is reported, suspicion obviously falls on those around her, including uh, Hindley's sister's boyfriend, David Smith, who was also an ex-boyfriend of Pauline's and lives only two doors away. He's a major suspect, especially considering at that time he already has a criminal record. He's questioned, however, when his alibi checks out, the search on him is dropped and eventually Pauline's case goes cold. 
Hindley at this time thought that this crime would have brought the two of them together, but for a short time it actually does the opposite. Brady cools right down on her and they actually separate for a couple of months with Brady dating men for a while. Huh. Hindley dates as well, including a man called Norman Sutton, who is funnily enough a police officer. However, she never mentions the murder to him. By November of the same year, though, they are back together and they commit their second terrible crime. After inviting Hindley over to listen to a new record, she goes running back to him, but suspecting that he may have more than just music on his mind, she turns up to his house prepared, lining the back of her car with plastic, taking an axe, a shovel, and a serrated knife, and wearing a wig to cover her bright blonde hair. Okay, Jesus. So just four months after their first kill, the couple lure in 12-year-old John Kilbride. The 12-year-old had gone to the local market to spend some of his pocket money where Hinsley lures him into her car under the pretense of giving him a lift home, and John is never seen again. In reality, John is taken to the same moors where he is raped and murdered by Brady. He first attempts to slit his throat, however, after this fails, he strangles him with a piece of string, and I imagine John died in a terrible amount of pain. Mm-hmm. Over 700 witness statements are taken, 500 missing posters are put up, and over 2,000 volunteers search the local area, but nothing shows up and the case eventually goes cold. Around six months later, the couple strikes again. After leaving his home to visit his grandmother on the 16th of June 1964, 12-year-old Keith Bennett disappears. His grandmother's house was only a mile away from his own, and so his parents would allow him to walk there on his own, thinking nothing possible could befall him on such a short walk. On his way to his grandmother's, Keith comes across a young woman asking for some assistance loading boxes into her car. Myra Hindley kidnaps the young boy and takes him to Sutterworth Moor, where over a half-hour period, Brady rapes, tortures, and strangles Keith. This murder marks part of what becomes their downfall with Brady not content with the simple acts themselves and starting to feel the compulsive need to document the murders via photographs, videos, and as well as stealing objects from the victims. Again, almost six months, so each murder is basically separated, nearly bang on six months. On the 26th of December, the pair attend a fair in Arncoats where they see 10-year-old Leslie Downey wandering around alone. Uh, The pair go up and walk near her and feign dropping their groceries. And when Leslie helps them, they ask for some assistance, taking them back to their car and then unpacking them at their house and being, you know, the sweet 1960 10-year-old. She, of course, agrees. Once at their home, they strip and gag her, forcing her to pose for pornographic images before raping and killing her. Brady also videotaped the murder itself, and in the tape, Leslie can be seen crying and referring to Hindley and Brady as mum and dad in an attempt to humanise them. Hindley maintains that she'd always intended to let Leslie go. She'd begun to run a bath with the intention to wash any DNA off and then let her leave. However, she stated she left the room and when she came back, Leslie had been strangled. However, he maintains that Myra did it. Either way, the following day, the pair drive Leslie's body to the moors and bury her naked in a shallow grave. Again, after her disappearance, this being the second young child to have disappeared. A massive community effort goes into trying to find her. However, no clues are unearthed and no links are drawn between the murders given the gaps in time and the different ages and sexes of the victims. 
Okay, so I just want to quickly jump back in time a little bit. So in August of 1964, Hindley's sister Maureen marries David Smith, although Hindley does not approve. However, the two couples uh, take a trip together and Brady takes a shine to David and they bond over different topics, including, uh, you know, distribution of wealth and David's criminal record and the possibility of robbing a bank together. Both men are seemingly impressed with each other and, you know, their attitudes and their criminal records and they the, the couples continue to go on multiple trips together. So on the 6th of October 1965, Brady and Hinsley wait outside Manchester Railway Station for a victim. Brady goes inside and comes back out with 17-year-old Edward Evans, who is a local apprentice. Uh, They start to chat. They offer him a lift back to their home to continue hanging out with them where they all relax with some wine and just sit and talk. At some point during the night, uh, Brady instructs Hindley to go and bring David Smith back to their house. Hindley does as she's told, telling him to wait outside for a flashing light, which will be, you know, a signal for him to come inside. So he sees the signal, he knocks on the door, and then when he comes into the home, this is a direct quote from David Smith. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room and I saw a young lad. He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him with his legs on either side of the young lad's legs. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his hand. He was holding it above his head and he hit the lad on the left side of his head with the hatchet. I heard the blow. It was a terrible, hard blow. It sounded horrible. So David then watches as Brady strangles Edward to death. And after Edward is dead, Hindley makes them all tea, where they joke about the victim's fear during the murder and the mess his attack has created. Terrified that he too will be killed, David basically masks his fear, pretending that he's totally cool with everything that's just happened. And he assists them with the cleanup. He leaves at around 3am telling the couple that he'll return the following day to help them dispose of the body because being 17, it's a much larger body than what they've become accustomed to disposing of. Instead, he goes home, understandably spews everywhere and then tells his wife, Maureen, what's happened. The next day, they immediately call the police and tell them everything. Superintendent Bob Talbot goes to the couple's residence, and after Hindley initially lies that Brady isn't home, Talbot goes inside and discovers him lying in the living room, nursing a sprained ankle which he'd sustained during the struggle with his victim last night. Uh, More police arrive, they look around the house and they find a locked room and after first trying to initially sort of throw them off and say, oh, that's my office and it's really messy and you don't want to go in there, she gives them the key where they go inside and find the bloody body of Edward Evans. Brady is immediately arrested, stating to police, Eddie and I had a row. After being questioned and not being able to be charged with anything initially, Hindley is actually released and for four days she's free, using the time to try and dispose of as much incriminating evidence as she can find. It's not until David's statement that the couple had mentioned more bodies buried in the moors where police investigate further. Conducting a full search of the home, they eventually find the photos and videos of 10-year-old Leslie in which you can clearly hear both Brady and Hindley speaking. 
Hindley still denied killing Leslie, saying that she'd only adopted a harsh tone in the videos because she was worried the neighbours would hear and interfere. But according to Hindley, Leslie was fine when she left their home and any harm came from David, not her. Due to her refusal to admit fully that it was Leslie in the tape, Leslie's mother is forced to watch and listen to the entire thing in order to positively identify that it's her. That's fucking heavy. Jesus. Eventually, their story unravels, and after finding photos of Hindley posing in the moors, they begin digging and eventually uncover the bodies of Leslie and John Kilbride. The couple are both arrested and charged with murder. The murders obviously make national headlines, and by the time of their trial, which begins on April 19th, 1966, they are, like, full-on famous, basically. Mm-hmm. Or infamous. Infamous, yeah. yeah. Hindley and Brady are, at one stage, brought to a trial at Chester as Azizes? Azizes. Some, see, sometimes I write words not thinking that I'm going to have to speak them out loud. A-double-S-I-Z-E-S. Yeah, so Azizes. I think you said it perfectly. Thanks. Anyway, so they're bought there on the 27th of April 1966 where they plead not guilty to all charges. The 13-minute tape of Leslie Downey's torture and murder with Hindley's voice clearly heard in the background seems pretty airtight, but it's so upsetting that many in the courtroom break down in tears while Hindley looks completely unmoved. Terence Downey, Leslie's father, and Patrick Downey, her uncle, are present on the day and attack the cars that bring the pair to court. On the 6th of May, 1966, Hindley is found guilty of the murders of... Sorry, Hindley and Brady are found guilty of the murders of Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans. And also, uh, Hindley is found guilty for harboring Brady in the knowledge that he'd killed John Kilbride. She, however, is not found guilty of killing John Kilbride. Sorry, I worded that so terribly. That's fine. Just keep going. You're, you're doing so good. <laughs> I worded that so bad. <laughs> so sorry, Hindley. Uh... Hindley is found guilty of the murders of Leslie Downey, Edward Evans, and for harboring Brady. Brady is found Perfect. guilty on the murder of Leslie Downey, Edward Evans, and John Kilbride. Great. There we go. They you did so well. Twenty-three-year-old Hindley is sentenced to two concurrent life sentences. At the time of the sentencing, the burial sites of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett were still undiscovered. After Hindley gives them various sort of unspecific clues and uh, vague descriptors, and after a hundred days of searching, on the first of July, nineteen eighty-seven, Pauline Reed's body is found. Hindley, however, would take the location of their last victim, Keith Bennett, to her grave. Both Ian Brady and Myra Hindley were sentenced to uh, multiple life terms in prison. Hindley died on the 15th of November 2002 from pneumonia, with Brady dying more recently in 2017 from heart disease. Good riddance. And to this day, Keith Bennett's body has never been found. Yeah, that's unfortunate. That, that's yeah. always the... That that's the worst case scenario. Because when in, you look at um, like I I don't think I've ever actually really looked at like what a moor is. Yeah. So what before. is a moor? So Can a you describe it for people? Is like don't? it's basically a huge like field with like some rocks 
and some grass and like little knolly hills, but there's like no trees, no real sort of identifying features. So I guess for disgusting humans like, you know, Myra Hindley and Ian Brady, they were probably so dismissive of their victims that of course it was you know near impossible for them to really nail down where they'd buried these kids because there's just no real specific landmarks to yeah. point out. So it's that's a very interesting point because it seems like he didn't necessarily have a victim profile that he was necessarily looking for, but whereas she was sort of providing the victims for him. Mm. So, and, yeah, they're just like mountains with grass and like a stream and they're huge. Yeah, and so I like, guess just like a lack of trees, basically. Yeah. They're just, just, they're massive. Yeah. Like how, how, how are you going to tell someone where you've buried a body? You'd be like, oh, it's near that <clears> rock. Yeah. So I guess, you know, when you think of it that way, there's no real connection. As with other murders to their victims, there's no real connection there. It seems like they're just using them and then dumping their bodies where they can. Where they can. Yeah. So that they, you know, whereas other murderers uh, like to pinpoint exactly where they are so they can return to the burial site later yeah. on. Um, but like, you look at the photos of these like little tiny wee babies. They're just like they're so little. Yeah. They don't. They don't look ten. Like. One of the boys has these, like, huge, big, like, wireframe glasses that are, like, three times the size of his head. He's just, like, the sweetest-looking thing ever, and it's just, like... Yeah, it's, it takes a takes a very distinct evil to, to first of all, want to prey on children yes, of that caliber, but also to take the life of them. It, it, it's... Just so unhinged and so unbelievable. But it's so not even just murder, like torture and rape, like, ra- and oh. then murder. Yeah, and and to go one further as to never disclose any hint or clue as to where the final victim's body was. Yeah, I couldn't really figure out from the readings whether it was like a on purpose thing, or if she's like, dude, I don't remember. Yeah, depending on where it is, there must be acres and acres of land. And I honestly don't know which one's worse. Like, actively saying, fuck you, I'm not telling you where the body is, or just being, like, so nonchalant and disconnected that you're like, I don't remember where we murdered this 10-year-old child and buried his body. I actually don't know which of those things is worse. I think they're both pretty bad. They're both terrible. Yeah, I don't know if one's worse than the other. It's just, it's all bad. And it really gives us perspective into... Yeah, nothing we talk about on this show is remotely good. No. Or, yeah. No, but there's different levels to it, for sure. There's different... um, There's different occurrences and levels to everything. It's not necessarily one's worse than the other, one's better than the other. It's always, they're just different in their own respects. You don't want any of them to happen ever. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks, Laura, for your You're welcome. Story. Just was, before um, you go on with yours, okay. um, just to break it up a little bit, I received a message from the lovely uh, Sean Cribben. 
who was our, not our guest, but our six degrees of separation story on our first episode for this season. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Sean's the, I guess the documentary of his story is called Was I Next, has been nominated for a Vegas Movie Awards. Oh, wow. Uh, so you can go on to www.vegasmovieawards.com slash poll, as in P-O-L-L. Uh, and if you scroll down, you can select Was I Next, the Sean Cribben story, to help to vote for Sean's Awesome. Yeah, great. Always good to help... Um you know, encourage people who want to bring these stories to the forefront and to light. Um, because because the victim stories are often never really talked about. Exactly. You know, and the ones who, who have actually survived these encounters are... It's so worthwhile to hear their stories. And it's very uh, beneficial to hear their stories and to learn from them. Yeah. So, I will leave the link to go vote for uh, Sean's story in our show notes. Yeah, that's great. Good on you, Sean. Um, cool. Well, thank you, Laura. Uh, my story, just a little quick tidbit thing. I'm really interested to hear this one. So, here's a little uh, insight to our lives in Sydney. So, we live in a suburb called Dulwich Hill, and that's in the inner west of the city of Sydney. Which is like the the Brooklyn of Sydney, basically. Exactly. But like, say, the other side of of, of Manchester. Uh, uh, um, not Manchester. <laughs> Manhattan. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Um, so the inner west, right. It's like the Brooklyn of, yeah, Sydney. Literally what I just said. But on the other side of the <laughs> island is what I mean. But there is no island. For, Man- for Manhattan. It's like, it's on the New Jersey side of... I'm so confused. If... if the inner west was Brooklyn for Sydney. Well, Brooklyn is like southwest. Of- yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. We're no, no. It's on the southeast, isn't it? No, because I don't. It's know. It's on the southeast of Manhattan. Well, the east is the ocean. It's on the east coast, so you can't go much further east. Otherwise, but Brooklyn's you hit water. east of Manhattan. Let's. I'm going to look it up on Google. Okay. Clearly, we saying? don't know enough about. American geography, which is fine because we don't live in America. Okay. It's on the southeast of Manhattan. Um, the inner west is obviously the western um, area of Sydney. We live in Dulwich Hill, which is a short stop away from uh, a very landmark area called Newtown, which is kind of like the um, the the local pub area, like a lot of cool cuisines, sort of back in the day was kind of like a, a, um, a kind of low socioeconomic area. Oh, yeah, it was area. like the slums. Yeah, which has really like thrived the over the years. Expensive place um, to did live. you also look up? Yes, it's kind of like south, south and slightly east. Yeah, so southeast. Anyway, um, so in between... Newtown and I think Stanmore. No, in between Redfern and Newtown. Is McDonald Sound. Yes. Yeah, okay. So there's a train stop called McDonald Town. And basically the only thing to do with the suburb of McDonald Town is this one train station. There's nothing else really you know involving 
the yeah, McDonald's like town the name. Smallest suburb in the world. Yeah. So, in, in obviously, this is a weird thing, and I wanted to, uh, you know, do, do a deep dive into why it is that all that remains of the name McDonald Town is a train station, and that led into one of the most disgusting and intriguing true crime stories of the inner west of Sydney. Uh, surprisingly, it, w- it was far beyond what I was expecting. So the story that I'm going to be talking about is a story I found on that day when I was doing a deep dive into that information. That of a couple called John and Sari Macon. Uh, and this was all happening around the late 1800s, the turn of the century, um, in fact. So, just a bit of backstory. Sarah Macon was born on the 20th of December in 1845. So, it's going way back in Sydney, the only daughter and elder child of former convict Emmanuel Sutcliffe, uh, who was a miller, and his Irish-born wife, Ellen Murphy, uh, which was her maiden name. On the 29th of April, 1865, Sarah married... Uh, with Presbyterian forms uh, to Charles Edwards, a mariner in Sydney, and together they had a daughter. On the 27th of August, 1871, Sarah Jane Edwards, who at the time was regarded as a uh, spinster, a, a unmarried uh, woman after leaving Charles Edwards, um, she later went on to marry... Uh, in the with free church of england rights to john macon and that's where they sort of begin their you know um long their marriage courtship? and family oh, they're married their courtship i guess yeah they're married love that word yeah um so john Macon at this time was a drayman for a brewery and they had five sons and five daughters together uh now because this is in the 1800s and it's uh in australia the information that we have about this couple it's very scattered and very mm. minimalistic. Um, so, we don't have a lot of backstory into them specifically. Yeah, I've got to give you props on doing something this old. I always yes. get too scared to do stories I this old. I had to do a lot of research into just finding what I just said mm. uh, because it's it's one of those things where there's no documentation whatsoever. Uh, this is back in like the wild days of... The know. Wild West. <laughs> uh, so... John Macon was born on the 14th of February, 1845 at Dapto, New South Wales. Rep, rep. <laughs> Dapto! Um, fourth of 11 children Oof. of William Samuel Macon, who was a farmer, and his wife, Ellen Selina, formerly her maiden name being Bolton. After John suffered a accident, um, of which we don't know what was, the Macons began a scraping living by taking care of illegitimate babies. So, uh, what John would go on to do was he would use an alias called Mr. J. Hill, and he responded to um, different adverts that women put out on newspapers and whatnot for taking care of their illegitimate children or children they couldn't take care of anymore. Mm. Uh, So, he did this to several advertisements, negotiating payments of three to five pounds and signed papers exonerating the, um, the, yeah, the father of the baby from any further responsibility. Uh, now back in these days, pounds, I believe were the currency 
used in Australia. I, I'm not a historian. I don't necessarily know. I did, from what I can understand. I think, I think until Federation, which was yes. 1901. So I believe in, yeah, so in Federation 1901, uh, f- for a period, um, currency were in the Australian colonies was British silver, copper coins, uh, minted golds, things like that. So I think for this, for this area, yeah, look, this it sounds time, legit. I... This point in time, it was um, in pounds. So, uh, so John would accept babies from whoever carers um, would typically avoid. So families, uh, families, this or um, such a red flag. You know, yeah, parents that or or women, uh, single women who had children that most foster families weren't accepting. Yeah, he would accept. Um. And one woman that comes into play much later in the story in 1892 was an 18-year-old woman named Amber Murray. So she placed an advertisement in the Sydney Morning Herald, which I know it's an old newspaper, but fuck me, that's an old newspaper. Uh, She was putting out a um, search for someone to adopt her baby. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, He he responded. Now, Murray wasn't able to care for her illegitimate son named Horace, who was born on the 30th of May that year. Um, but she offered to cover any child support expenses that John Macon may need. So uh, Amber was told that her son Horace would aid Mrs. Hill, the pseudonym for um, for John's pseudonym's wife, mm-hmm. uh, as she had recently lost her own son and was in a melancholy state. So Amber paid Mr. Hill three pounds, believing that she would be able to see her son at uh, certain prearranged times and that he was being left with a caring, loving family. Now, in good faith, she left her son to, to, uh, at uh, Mr. and Mrs. Hill's George Street, uh, Sydney address. Now, while they weren't the first known baby farmers in existence... They were certainly evil and cunning enough to stand out amongst others. Mm. So to young and often disadvantaged mothers who had no choice but to give up their children to a family who could care for them, the Makins made promises that they could visit their babies once they were placed in loving homes. Posing as a wealthy, childless couple, the Makins made themselves to seem like they were doing the community a favor. It was not unusual for there to be up to six babies in the house at any given time. They were collecting around ten shillings per week, which I believe were the, you know, in the olden days were coins. Yeah. Um, for each baby, uh, which would in this time make a pretty decent income for the family. Yeah. Uh, not to mention, they also continued to collect weekly payments for the dead and buried uh, through their local church, I believe. Uh, and Sarah. Uh, was often found to have pawned the clothing of the deceased to add to their right. their, their income, if you will. Uh, the Makins, over the span of 20 years, moved houses 15 times. Now, this, of course, made it all the more difficult for the children's mothers to, to track them track down. Them down. Uh, so, but, however, despite this, John would still make the effort to keep up his schedule and turn up like clockwork to collect all the money from the mothers. When they asked about when they could possibly visit their children, John would typically make up different excuses. John told 
Amber Murray, the woman we mentioned before, uh, that he and Sarah were moving out west and that he would arrange a visit when they settled in six weeks later. He still went to Amber's house weekly to collect the money, but his story meant that she wouldn't necessarily harass him about seeing her child. Mm. The Megans did a midnight run from their Redfern address to Burren Street, McDonald Town, where they would continue their crimes. The Megans often didn't pay their rent, you know, uh, surprise, surprise. Uh, and on another midnight run, they saw them to move to Chippendale. The owners took over uh, their McDonald Town residence um, and cut the losses and began renovations. On the 11th of October, 1892, James Hannany was assisting the owners uh, at the McDonald Town house with drain work because supposedly there was a blockage in the drains. Oh, God. What he found was definitely not what he expected. Wedged in tight were two separate bundles of infant's clothing. Smell, as James described, was overbearing as he was pulling the material out. When he was finally done pulling everything out, he discovered the two decomposing corpses of... Two oh, separate infants. Jesus. He immediately called and informed the police, and the yard was thoroughly searched. Through the search, they uncovered a further five different decomposing bodies of infants in various states. Now, looking through Tennessee, Tennessee records, uh, they traced the Macons back to their Redfern address, and the investigation continued with the discovery of the remains of three more infants. The George Street address was also excavated and a further three infant corpses were removed, this making a total of 12 bodies recovered, although some speculate that they were 13. Oh, Jesus. So if you look at the actual records, it could be 12, could be 13. It's not too sure. John Sarah and their teenage daughters uh, were adamant about swearing that they had only ever been in, uh, had one infant in their care while they were... Um, you know, receiving income, and it had been returned to its respective parents. Inquests into the causes of death for the infants proceeded in November 1892. Unable to identify bodies uh, or establish causes of death, obviously this is a different time, yeah. um, forensic evidence wasn't a thing, there was no evidence of violence or poison that they could see. And on the 28th of November, a jury returned with open verdicts in four cases, but identified one body as that of the illegitimate child of Minnie Davis and Horace Bottomley and recommended uh, that a manslaughter charge be against the Macons. Now, the child of Bottomley and Davis had... Uh, they had made uh, weekly payments and visited the household of the Macons um, often every Saturday night. They supposedly were quite satisfied, quote, with their baby's treatment. They had been told that their child had unfortunately fallen ill and Macon sent Bottomley a telegram uh, that the baby had been taken to a doctor. The parents were able to see their infant child's body laid out and accepted the Macon's offer to arrange a burial for the child. Jesus. Yeah. So obviously this is, you know, I guess gaslighting in a way. Yeah. Um, sounds. Yeah. Yeah. So in March of 1893, John and Sarah Macon were tried for the murder of Horace Murray, uh, or 
if he was yet to be identified because it was a different time, uh, just an unknown infant. Neither of them took the stand. Uh, disregarding the testimony of disfiguring sores, the trial judge, when addressing the jury, spoke of a healthy infant death within two days. The jury found both the defendants guilty of murdering an unknown infant, which we think was that of Horace Murray, which mm-hmm. was the child of the woman we mentioned earlier. Um, however, the jury recommended mercy for Sarah. Right. The uh, she was a woman. Yes, because she was an unknowing bystander, apparently. The uh, Dibbs government rejected a plea for clemency. Uh, John then signed a statement that the body was not that of Amber Murray's son, claiming that, quote, it was buried in the yard four to five weeks before we got her child. John Macon was uh, hanged on the 15th of August, 1893 at Sydney Jail. Sarah's sentence was commuted to penal servitude for life, which she served at Bathurst and in Sydney. Her daughter's pension for her early release in 1907 and again in 1911. And on the 29th of April, 1911, she was discharged from the state reformatory for women at Long Bay to care for, to, to the care of her daughter, Florence, on the grounds of her age and declining health. Hmm. She uh, would go on to nurse her eldest daughter through a fatal illness, which she unfortunately obviously passed away from, and then proceeded to live with her son-in-law. Uh, as she was come to known as Mother Macon, um, died uh, through um, unknown causes. I think it was just heart failure or just old age. Mm. Died on 13th of November 1918 at Marrickville. And she was buried with Anglican Rikes in Rookwood Cemetery. She was survived by three sons and four daughters. Now, where this kind of gets into the whole McDonald Town thing. Yeah. This was all happening during the time of a huge push to change McDonald Town's name. And thus led to a huge debate as to whether the murders that happened during this time, the major yeah. murders, were the result of it. Uh so Interestingly enough, through a deep dive into information and a lot of journalists also doing the same thing, thank you guys, um, the local council that actually approved their name change plans back in April 1892, which was six months before the first baby's bodies were found. Okay. Uh, newspaper articles from 1892 showed that the reason given by Alderman Carter, the mayor of McDonaldtown at the time, was that, quote, Times, circumstances, everything had changed, and the importance of the borough necessitated a change of name. He was supported by Alderman Anderson, who suggested that the changing name, as suggested, would increase property value by at least 5%. Essentially, they thought Erskineville, the name, which it now is, Mm. uh, sounded nicer than McDonaldtown, which, interesting enough, is the suburb that's now known as, that whole area is now known as Erskineville, and then proceeded to um, expand into what is now known as Erskineville. Uh, As a result, it did drive property prices up, uh, which previously before McDonaldtown was kind of known as a tough working class area. Mm. Today, it's it's the place to live. Yeah, it's so expensive. He's so expensive. Um, so they wrote a letter to the state government asking for a bill to change the name. Uh, another qu- a quote by um, 
someone who delved into the story themselves, Dr. Murray, uh, McDonald Town was a real working class community and that didn't match the aspirations of the councils who thought times are changing, so we're going to change the name. By the 1890s, subdivision in McDonald Town and Erskineville had peaked and the present street pattern in the area was largely formed. With the opening of the Erskineville Railway Station in the centre of the uh, area the and the building of the town hall nearby shortly afterwards, it was no doubt considered a progressive and sensible option to change the name to Erskineville. Hmm. So that was <clears throat> done to separate itself from these murders? No. No. Had nothing to do with the murders whatsoever. Oh. So this, that's what I said, this bill that they placed or the council put forward happened was signed six months before the bodies were ever found. But the common misconception is that the mayor changed the name because of the bad press around all these bodies being found right. in the McDonald Town area. Gotcha. The thing is, it wasn't even just the McDonald Town area, it was also Redfern and mm. other places. There was several different houses that they moved into. Because I looked it up on Google Maps. I don't think McDonald Town is actually a suburb anymore. It's not. It's so McDonald Town, a train station. So McDonald Town is, is survived by its one train station. Right. McDonald Town as a whole doesn't exist anymore. It did in the 1800s up until the 1890s when it transitioned into Erskineville. Gotcha. I think Erskineville was also an established suburb. Maybe a smaller suburb. Maybe not. I'm not too sure about that. Going off Google Maps, it looks like <clears throat> McDonald Town Station is now in the suburb known as Everly. I think the station is. Yeah. But the entire suburb of McDonald Town as a whole um, is now Erskineville. Yeah. Um, that's the thing about the inner west, though. Like, suburbs, the borders are so uh, yeah, it's tricky and weird. Weird. Yeah. Um, so there was a letter that I won't necessarily read because it doesn't really explain too much. It's basically just a letter by John Macon, uh, expressing how he never had anything to do with the murder of Amber Murray's child and the body that was found in their backyard was not Amber Murray's, I think the one he was tried for. Yeah. His wife had nothing to do with it, rah, 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 rah. Um, yeah, it, it's just a, another case of a terrible story that, of something that shouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, I don't like to use the term baby farming because it's just such a demeaning It's awful term. to... Um, yeah. So I don't necessarily want to use that too much in this case because it it makes it... It make, it gives it a color that I don't necessarily like to paint it in. It, it's just an evil fucking thing that shouldn't have happened. Yeah, to pretend to help out struggling mothers and then actually murder their children. Exactly. During a time... You know, where I don't think abortion was really a thing. Um, I don't think in like a clinical sense, I'm sure no. that there were desperate people doing what they could. But yeah. I think in a terms of like going to a, a doctor's surgery and doing it safely, no, I don't think it would have existed. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So that's my story. Fuck these shitbags in both of our cases. Yeah. Um. So they never actually found out how they murdered the babies. From what I can tell, no. It, mm. It's um, obviously with the body in the 1890s, which was then, I guess, properly buried, not kept in 
a, a morgue or on ice. Yeah. Um, you know, it, nowadays, if so, if an infant dies, it's taken to a cold chamber where they can then run tests yeah. and figure out into a, to a... I guess it probably would have been something like asphyxiation or something. I imagine... If there were no, like, outward signs of yeah, violence. From what they could see, there was no signs of war. Yeah. But also, they couldn't tell if it was poison or not, but... This is the 1890s. They're not necessarily like poison. Wouldn't have been very prevalent. Well, they wouldn't have been able to find it. Yeah. If they if they test for it, there's no test really for it. Um. So unfortunately, no, we don't really have, and there's no closure on any of the other uh, babies that were killed. On all we know is the mothers gave them the children and never saw them again. Never saw them again. That's so sad. Yeah. That's so sad. Um. Very interesting. The the children of which it's again it's hard to say because there's not a lot. Ri- it's in Australia. It's in the early nineteen um, hundreds. But the children, there's not a lot written about them. Uh, like the the uh, the the Macon's children. That is. Yeah. Um, but they were very adamant about protecting their mother. Yeah, it's a bit odd. Yeah. Anyway. There is that. That was a very interesting one. I'd never, um, I'd never really heard much about that one before. Good job. Those older ones are really hard to research. Yeah, like I said, it was it was one of those things where it was like curiosity. One day got the best of me, and it's like, why, why the fuck is there this one random train station with no real suburb oh, to like back it can up? Can I say it's the worst train station ever mm-hmm. because every now and then you'll accidentally get on a train that's all stops and it'll stop at McDonald Town and it's just like why? Yeah, I think they just use it as like a a train a lobby. They they store trains there, I believe. That's oh, you can get the train from McDonald Town. Yeah, but I'm saying they mostly just use that station oh, as like a yeah. A, because it's on the tracks and they can't obviously divert the tracks. Where the old trains go to die. Yeah. It's um it's very interesting. Uh you could theoretically change it to whatever suburb it technically Everly. lies in now. Yeah. Everly. I don't think Everly has a train station. It doesn't. Because Everly and Redfern are very intertwined. Yeah, so there you go. Just There's a little, a little bit of, a little bit of uh, fun facts about Sydney suburbs. If little, you ever yeah. come to Sydney, if you're not a an Australian listener, if you're one of our yeah, lovely because, stateside listeners. Um, a lot of you guys who listen are from the States and um, some from the UK. Uh, as a little insight into our little world here in Sydney, it's... um. A constant frustration. Yeah, the trains here suck. Yeah, it's very bad. But you know, we do what we can. Yeah, we survive. But uh, thank you for thank you for joining us. If you're new around here, this is the portion of the show where we sign off on our stories and we just kind of shoot the shit for a little while, talk about our week, talk about things we like, talk about things we hate. Uh, so if you are someone who just just came for the vibes, just came for the crime mm-hmm. thanks for your vibes thanks thanks for the vibes yep. thanks for adding to the atmosphere of the podcast mm-hmm. and we'll see you next week but if you are one of the strange people who weirdly Sad find saps. us entertaining like you know thanks <laughs> for whatever reason i'm not gonna lie that seltzer has gone straight <laughs> to my head <laughs> Well, it's good because we're probably going to go to bed like right after this. Like I can't formulate sentences inside my brain. Formulate. 
lost my ability to work. You have. You've lost your eyes and eyes. What? You said I'm can't form. Did me. I? You did. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and you <laughs> just missed my comment on it. Whoopsie. Yeah. It's very interesting um, with how you said with the, the whole deep fake thing with your case, uh, where technology is kind of going and how. Yeah, it's so. And it's not like, you know, the animation doesn't like make them do anything crazy. It basically just moves their head side to side, but it's still. Yeah, but you've got to imagine to the circulation and the impact that fascination and true crime brings. You've got to wonder about the impacts of how that in itself must affect victims of assault and surviving members of... Yeah, so true. Um, so, I don't know, in case you haven't seen it, like, that's the Myra Hinsley one. Like, it doesn't do anything crazy. It just kind of moves ahead side to side, but it's creepy when she, like, looks at you and it feels like she's staring into your soul. I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like, like that. I don't like that. Get that away from me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... Uh... Yeah, it's 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 very crazy yeah. what technology can do. It is. It's getting to a point where it's just like, what are we getting into? I don't really want to know what's next after that. Mm. You know. Yeah. No, I'm 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 good. Sometimes I feel like technology just goes too far. I'm like, that was an avenue we really didn't need to explore as human beings. Like, it's it's interesting that we can go there, but we we didn't need to. Do you want a fun random fact? Speaking of technology, always uh, Elon Musk to buy one of his own Teslas has to pay full price. Why is that? Because it's just a rule he put in place. Oh, he doesn't feel he's exempt from paying for okay. those cars. Fair enough. It's kind of random. Yeah. I'd be a bit annoyed if I was an employee and they were like, you don't get a discount. I'd be like, fuck you. Oh, I mean, his employees probably get discounts, but he doesn't, he doesn't give himself a discount. Right. Or take things for free or for cost. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. He's a weird dude, Elon Musk. He's a bit of a weird guy. Uh, I don't know how I feel about him. Yeah, because you know I mean? like, he'll do something cool, but then he'll like make transphobic comments and you're like can you just pick a lane yeah. dude yeah because it's confusing i think it's just it just comes down to education i feel like some guys like that just kind of need you know to learn about their comments and how they affect people very true and i, f- I feel like i don't personally fucking know him i don't know anyone who's a billionaire but i gotta imagine life's pretty fucking weird yeah, and being famous. Anyway, I don't know. He was also rich from a young age as well. Um, it starting still PayPal. blows my mind that he founded PayPal. Like, yeah. I don't know why that trivia just seems so odd. Yeah, to well, me. it's one of those things where, like, you know, I, I we use Uber all the time. I don't know who founded Uber, but I use it all the time. And then in twenty years, we might come to know, like, hey, that you know that guy who's on that fucking like. TV show we like. Yeah, he founded Uber. I think it's more so because in my head, Elon Musk is young, but PayPal is like a really old technology. Old. Yeah. Which we- may not be the case. I actually have no idea when PayPal was founded, but in my head, it's been the around 90s, for like. 90s, I believe. Ages. Or early 2000s. He yeah, started so when in- he was young, very young. Yeah. Anyway, WandaVision. Oh, yeah. So um, we've been really loving WandaVision. We've been watching it the, the almost the second it comes out. Um, it's uh, really getting us 
uh, intrigued as to where they're going next. Yeah, I'm very excited for Doctor Strange now. Yeah. For the next Doctor Strange. The next Doctor Strange film. Yeah. I got – I'm kind of upset at the fact that – so the original episodes to end off the series were meant to be longer – but the studio decided to cut them down for, I guess, continuity or yeah. you know, to, and, to, um, to make them consistent. I was mainly annoyed, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched the finale Don't yet. Don't listen. I was mainly pissed off that fucking Paul Bettany, the motherfucker, just teased yeah. the entire collective <clears throat> of the internet space just being like, oh, this cameo is amazing, this cameo is amazing, it's going to break the internet. And then it was himself. Yeah, the actor I, I, he's um, been wanting to shoot with was himself. I was like, "You motherfucker!" I feel like it was just the case of like it got really way too overhyped. Whereas if it sort of sat pretty in this mid-range thing, no one would give a shit. But it was the shift fact that like everyone went into it with like low expectations. They're like, "Oh, it's just gonna be like a weird, fucking weird sitcom-y kind of thing." I don't know what it's going to be. I'm not really that interested in the characters that much. Yeah. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, shit. It was very This is very interesting and very captivating. And I think the sheer fact of that mixed with, like, throwing in Evan Peters' Quicksilver and mm, that all was this cool other kind of stuff. Ralph Boner. You know, <laughs> Boner. Um, I think things like that just kind of got people way too excited than how they thought people would react. Yeah. And... I don't think it was anything, you know, malicious, but... It I, felt personally malicious yeah. to me. Do you know what, though? I did watch uh, an interview with Paul Bettany on YouTube today, and he has this saying that he says in all his interviews whenever he gets asked about spoilers, which I thought was quite cute. Whenever, like, an interviewer was like, can you give us any, like, you know, any exclusives or spoilers for the next Marvel film, he will just simply respond saying snitches end up in ditches. And I don't yeah, know why, I, I just that. thought that was really funny. Yeah, that's got to... Snitches end up in ditches. It's got to mean something. Well, you, like a fucking <coughs> Marvel NDA, I imagine, would just sue the living shit out of you. Yeah, I think he, he even said, like, in one interview, he was like, I, for fear of getting fined, I won't say anything more than this, but... Like, you would just... Like, it's a billion-dollar franchise. You would be yeah. in so much trouble. Yeah. Very true. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, I don't have anything else. Yeah, to, I'm all talked out. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to... Uh, I don't... I'm coming up blank. What if we, like, didn't have content to talk about and this was just our, our entire show was us talking? And it got to like the ten minute mark, and we were like, "Well, fuck." That's what I imagine <laughs> must happen to some people, like who just have shows where they chat. Like, if you don't have a structured framework, and if like sometimes you're just not in the mood. Sometimes I'm like, I'm not in a good mood. I just don't feel like chatting. Yeah, I think it it really it works well for people who don't live together. So people who don't necessarily see each other every single day. And they kind of come in and they talk oh, about things because. I wish that was me. What? Oh, wow, fuck. <laughs> but like, y- y- you can have very good discussions with people that you haven't really seen for a while, 
for like you know an hours on end. Yeah, I get what you mean. Um, but us, we've already been talking all. Yeah, I'm sick afternoon. of you. Yeah, no, I'm fucking over it. Done. Yeah, dusted, busted. Once this show's over, that's it. This is the this is the season finale. You busted forever. and crusted, Tama. Yeah. Wow, busted and crusted. It's mm-hmm. my new saying. Crusted and dusted. Busted, crusted, and dusted. Damn. That's what you're going in be. that order. In that order. Specifically. I'm going to bust you and then your wounds are going to ooze and get infected and get crusted. And then you're going to die from sepsis and you're going to be cremated and then you'll be dusted. Right. That'll be the new title of our show. Busted, Busted, crusted, 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 dusted. dusted. Yeah. I love that I actually made that somehow also sort of make sense as well. You did. Very good. That was... uh, When it comes to murder tactics, you're oddly... (laughs) Fascinatingly, people probably listen to this. They're like, "What is wrong with this?" Yeah, show? there's something. There's something like, there's something weirdly coherent about the way that you know your tactics of murder. Well, I like to think that if anyone ever wants to mess with me, it's slightly terrifying for me to be like, I can think of multiple ways that I could kill you, and I'm fairly confident that I would probably be able to get away with it. Yeah, and if you wanted to learn kickboxing as well. Theoretically, yeah, you could be the kill, shit out of you. Well, you could kill someone with your hands. Oh yeah, that's the dream. That's 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 the, the dangerous stuff. It's not actually the dream. Just to be clear, I don't want to murder anyone. Yeah. For the most part. <laughs> For now. <laughs> For now. <laughs> don't get on my bad side. Right this moment. But yeah, I but, yeah. do. You have anything else to talk about? I don't. Okay. Well, we'll probably end it there because when we try and force things to, it ends up going in weird places and. It's not a good time for anyone. So our youngest cat, Peach, is just so weird. What's she doing? She was cleaning herself and she was like headbanging herself. She's so cute. Something that she's just such a weirdo. They're all a bit weird. There's nothing you can really do to explain how weird our cats are. Someone asked me at work today, they were like, when do you think you're going to have kids? And I was like, to be honest... We are kind of undecided on whether we're not we're going to have kids, but yesterday morning I got woken up at five a.m. by a cat projectile vomiting under the bed. Yeah. So, like for now, can, can we also stop? We're good with the cat. Can we stop the fucking like normalization of that question? Like, why do we have to ask women when are they planning on having kids, or couples for that matter, when they're having kids? Like, it's first of all, it's none of your fucking business when I have kids. Second of all, kids. Uh, who who the fuck cares? It's what? kids. Like, why don't you ask me, when are you planning on having chocolate next? It's a more fucking necessary question than when are you having kids? I'm surprised that people don't ask me more often when are you getting another cat. That, that to me, is like a, a question it's, where I'm like, makes sense. It's just kind of rude. Like, so when are you having kids? Like, fucking, well, it's not that it's any of your business, but I don't plan on having kids. I plan on getting naked and eating chocolate in front of my TV tonight. At the same time. At the same time. And I can't really do that when I have kids around, can I, Samantha? Thanks for your concern. Judgmental bitch. John. Yeah. Fuck you, John. Anyway. You got a Bible verse named after you? Fuck you. (laughs) Fucking. Fucking John. John, Jacob, Mark. Yeah. Motherfucker. If you're one of those dudes who has a name that's named after a Bible verse, I feel sorry for you because you're just- Your best friend has Bible verses. Exactly. And I feel- (laughs) Wait, is Jacob a verse? I'm pretty sure, yeah. It's a Bible name. Shout out to Jacob. The real MVP. Anyway, like I said, when we try and force topics, it goes to weird places. So, sure. Thank you for this listening. This is what the people want. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us again. We hope you enjoyed this episode yeah. as always. Uh, we'd really appreciate it if you've got a spare 30 seconds, if you chuck mm-hmm. us a review on Apple because it does genuinely help us in like the rankings and all that shit. And yeah, the link for our merch and the link to go vote for Sean Cribben's story will be in our show notes. If you want to follow us, we are at the BSC podcast on all things social media. Yeah, bang, and bang, thanks, skid, skid. Bang, bang, skid, skid. It was Agatha all along. Dun, um, dun, dun. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We hope you have a good week and we'll see you next episode. Yeah. Bye. Bye.